0: Good morning and welcome again. So good to be with you to worship together. Today, we have the joy of starting chapter four in the book of Ephesians. We ended chapter three a couple weeks ago and we've seen, and we did kind of an overview so I'm not gonna do too much of this, but we have seen three whole chapters of theology and doctrine, how to think about God, what God has done in Christ. We have learned about God the Father in his planning and accomplishing of salvation. We've learned about Christ Jesus, the Son of God, and what he has done on our behalf in purchasing this redemption. We've also seen the work of the Holy Spirit as he applies these things to our hearts. One thing to note is that there is not a single command for us to obey in the first three chapters of Ephesians. There are, of course, implications, and we applied things in a way that was helpful for us and that there was something for us to do. But in the text, there is not a do this, live this way, conduct yourself this way until we get to chapter 4. All of the first three chapters are fact. God has done this. Christ has accomplished this. I think the point of this structure is to help us see that if you and I And the church at Ephesus, if we do not put a foundation under our obedience, if we don't have right motivations for what we do, that we're not going to live a life ultimately pleasing to God. He has set things up in a very specific way. All of the love, all of the obedience, all of the doing of the things has to, for the Christian, be motivated by the knowledge that God in Christ has already done the work that qualifies us to be children of God. And now we simply follow in obedience because of what God has done. So now, we come to three entire chapters of instruction and command and encouragement for us. And we must not forget That obedience to the will of God, doing what this text is going to tell us to do, is to be seen as a response to what God has done. If we mix those up, if we start to think that we initiate things by our doing, our working, our acting, and then the Holy Spirit comes along and says, I'm just going to give you the nudge that you need to get to where you need. That's not the right way to think about it, is it? The Holy Spirit works in our hearts, convicts us of our sin, and motivates us, enables us to live lives of obedience. We need to be really careful that we don't reverse those. You know why? Because the entire Bible is about glory and who gets it and who deserves it. And if we put ourselves in front of God's work and we come into this and say, oh man, there's all this stuff to do and we got to do this and do that and do that, We have to see that as being fueled or enabled by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, we put ourselves in a position of taking credit for it, and that robs God of the glory that he deserves. So I am so excited to work through these texts with you over the coming weeks and months. And we're going to be in chapter 4 until June, at which point we will take a break. We're going to do a summer series in the Psalms. And really excited for that. There's so much good encouragement and worship and everything in the Psalms. So really excited for that. Then in September, Lord willing, we will come back and pick up in verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. So for the next five Sundays, we will be in Ephesians chapter 4. Lord willing. That's the plan, at least for now. And I'm going to try to get a preaching schedule out. I know some of you like to look ahead, so I'm going to map the whole spring and summer so that you can know where we're going, you can read ahead, you can prepare your heart in the Word of God before we come together to worship. So I'll try to get that out also in the next couple weeks. But for this morning, let's open our Bibles or your tablet or whatever you're reading on to Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to read this section that we're going to be in for the next several weeks. Verses 1 through 16. So I invite you to follow along as we start this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray as we begin this morning. God, I ask for your help this morning. I ask that as I try in my feeble ability to expose the meaning of this text that your Holy Spirit would bind himself to this word and work in all of our hearts, including mine. Lord, we have no hope of coming to your word and understanding or taking away helpful things unless you do the work of opening our eyes, which is why... Paul prays and the, and the psalmist pray, Lord, open our eyes that so we can see what's in your word. Open the eyes of our heart that we would know what you have for us. So Lord, we are very quick to confess we are dependent creatures. We depend upon you for life, for breath, for provision. And we depend upon you, Lord, for our spiritual health as well. And I'm so thankful that you did not save us and then just leave us to figure things out on our own, but you have given us unspeakable gifts in your word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which applies the word to each of our hearts. So God, come this morning and do this work among us. That invitation is not giving you permission. You need not have our permission, Lord, but we readily admit that we need you to be here, and so we ask you to be here. And pray, Lord, that right now, in this few minutes that we have together, you would do the work that your word was purposed to do. And I pray that this would happen in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. Amen. As we start Ephesians 4 here, we see the second time that Paul has referred to himself as a prisoner for Christ or a prisoner of the Lord. Earlier in chapter 3, he said his imprisonment was on behalf of the Gentiles. And we noted there that Paul wasn't thrown in prison for cheating a business deal or stealing or whatever. He was in prison because he refused to stop preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. That's why he says he is in prison on their account. But he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, in chapter 4, I think there's another reason that he brings up his imprisonment. And we're going to get to that in a minute. And it has to do with the obedience, the walking that he is calling us to do. The first command for us in the book of Ephesians is found right here in chapter 4, where Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which is kind of the overarching statement of the rest of this book, because in the following chapters, Paul is going to fill in what does that mean. Walk in a manner worthy of your call. What are you talking about? Well, keep reading. And keep coming back because that's what we're going to work through for the next however many weeks the Lord gives us. I think it's important also that Paul does not simply suggest that we walk this way as if it were kind of an optional thing. He urges us. He implores us. You catch that word? There's a lot of emphasis behind that word urge. There's an immediacy I urge you to walk this way. Now you might have come to this text and considering everything we've seen, you might expect Paul to say, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Which would be true and right. But he doesn't say that. He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So when the New Testament speaks about calling, it's referring to this effectual invitation from God to be a part of his family and bring us into relationship with him. It is, as one of the guys I was reading said, God's effectual activity in making our predestination effective. When God calls, we answer. Not because of our ability, but because of his grace, which is extended to us. Now there's many things included in this calling. It's a call to something, right? It's, Paul doesn't leave it as a vague Uh, kind of nebulous thing where you can figure it out for yourself. He really does fill everything in under this. It's a certain way of living. It's a standard that's all included in this call. So, walking in a manner worthy of your call, like I said, is a pretty broad statement. We need to get a little bit more specific to understand what he's saying. Notice that Paul doesn't qualify this statement by saying Uh, if if you're in a specific situation, walk worthy of your calling. Or he doesn't say, when you're out in the world and you you live your life publicly, make sure you walk in the right way. Right? There's no qualifiers, there's no caveat to this command. This is to be done in every single area or situation of our lives. Which is why I think Paul includes the imprisonment part when he starts this chapter. It would have been easy for Paul to say, or if you and I were in the situation, uh, I'm called from God. We see it many places. Paul talks about why God called him. To be an apostle, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, right? That's who Paul is. Now, Paul gets thrown in prison. And couldn't he just have said, well, we're going to hit the pause button. I mean, what can I do? I'm in prison. I'm going to hit the pause on that. And if I ever get out, then my calling continues and I'll preach the gospel. Thank God that he did not do that because we wouldn't have had the letter of Ephesians had Paul set his calling aside and said, man, the circumstance is too hard. I'm not going to walk in this. I can't. Yes, he can. And yes, you can. We wouldn't have this letter. We wouldn't have Philippians, First and 2 Timothy probably. Many things that Paul did, he did in less than ideal circumstances. So, when we come to this verse and we see walk in a manner worthy of your calling, there is no time in our lives where that does not apply. There is no time where you set your Christian identity aside and say, if I speak up about this right now, I know I'm in the minority, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. We do that. That's not what Paul is calling us to. That's not what the word of God is calling us to. This is a bold calling to be lived out in every single area of our life. Paul writes this to remind us that even in the worst situation, he is in prison. This is not a nice place. He still walks worthy of his calling. There's a way to walk. There's a job to do. There's a gospel to preach in all the areas of our lives. This is the obedience that God is calling us to. And kind of in keeping with that, I want to point out that if we get in the habit of picking it up when it's convenient, putting it down, we have to view that as partial obedience. And I would just say, partial obedience is full disobedience to God's call. There just is no room, brothers and sisters, to pick this up when it's convenient and put it down when it's not. That is not the example of the Apostle Paul and that ought not to be the way that we think about our calling as Christians. We've been called to something and no matter what happens, even if we're thrown in prison, as Paul was, we are to walk worthy of this call. I just think it's so amazing. You read in the book of Acts Paul's in prison, right? Him and Silas, this is in the city of Philippi. They get thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. And what happens? Paul doesn't lay aside his calling, he leads the jailer to Christ in prison. What an example for us of what we are to do in walking worthy of this call. So, what does he mean here by this calling? Let's let's identify this calling. What does it mean to walk worthy of this call? Well, we need to define a little bit more closely what we mean because generally, if I just said, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called as a Christian, you could say, well, it means to live the Christian life. But I'm guessing that we would all have a slightly different articulation of what does that mean. Or maybe we don't know what the Bible means when it says, you have a calling, walk worthy of your calling. So, we want to look at a couple things from the Apostle Peter. Now, we know... From Peter's second letter that he was familiar with Paul's writings and we know from Galatians and reading the book of Acts that Peter and Paul had interactions and so I feel justified in using Peter to explain Paul or I could say robbing Peter to pay Paul either way. Let's look at what Peter says. First Peter, Peter in 1 Peter talks so much about the calling of the Christian. It is a very helpful primer if you want to look at what does it mean as a Christian that I am called to something. Peter talks a lot about this and someday we'll preach to this letter. But listen to these three things. First, the Christian is called to be holy. First Peter 1.15 But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, be holy for I am holy. We are called to be set apart, distinct from the world. We are called to imitate the very holiness of God in the way that we live our lives. And praise God, he gave us his spirit to help with that. Second, the Christian is called to suffer. 1 Peter 2, 21, for to this suffering you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might walk and follow in his steps. The life we are called to as Christians, the calling that we are to walk worthy of is not always flat and smooth. And I'm willing to bet that every one of us in this room would attest to that. There are times when it is very difficult to live out our faith, to hold the conviction that we have from the word of God. But it is our calling as Christians to look to Jesus and to see how he handled suffering and imitate that in our lives. For to this we have been called. Thirdly, the Christian is called to patiently endure. First Peter 3.9 Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless For to this you were called. Part of our calling as believers is to have a different response than the world has in situations. The mantra of the world is, if someone wrongs you, wrong them back. Even the scales. Right? That's not Christianity. So when we come to Ephesians 4... And we read that we are to walk worthy of our calling, it means that we are to do everything we do in a way that shows it is obvious and clear that we belong to Jesus. And we have Christ like character coming out at every turn. This is what Paul is encouraging and even urging us to do. When we suffer, suffer as a Christian. When you pursue holiness, Don't do it for your own recognition. Pursue it because that's what you are called to. And when you are mistreated, endure it as a Christian. Do not give the watching world a reason to doubt your calling. This is the life that we are to live as believers. And as I mentioned before, another way to define what this calling is is just to keep reading. Keep reading the book of Ephesians. And you'll fill in all of those gaps as to what it means to walk worthy of of Christ and his calling. As we go on through the book, I'm not going to give it all away, but there's just this calling affects every area. I mean, there is there is stuff for us to observe and do in everything. It's our morals, it's our ethics, it's our sexuality, it's our workplace conduct, how do you conduct yourself as an employee? It has to do with our parenting and our marriages and everything. It's our battle against sin. We have been called to conduct ourselves in a very specific way as believers. And that's what we're going to see as we move through the rest of the book. Now, let's look at verses 2 and 3 and see. So Paul says in verse 1, walk worthy of this call. And then 2 and 3 we see... How we are to do that. What should our attitude be? Because everyone who has ever been a child or has a child knows that there is joyful obedience and there is gritting your teeth obedience. (laughs) And Paul is calling us to the first kind, the joyful obedience. So let's look at what our attitude ought to be as we walk in these ways. He says that we are to walk with all humility and gentleness. King James translates this, lowliness and meekness, which are wonderful words. And when we hear that, we should obviously think of Christ and his life. Now, that's not just a Sunday school answer. Sometimes we say, well, if you need an example, look to Jesus. And we say it so much, it kind of gets to be, okay, yep, yeah, we know, look to Jesus. But really, honestly, think about this. Matthew 11, same words are used here. Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, here's the words, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Same words. Gentleness. Humility. Humility or lowliness was a word that the Greeks hated. They never used it in a positive sense. That was not like a, oh, that guy's awesome. He's really gentle and lowly. Like, that was not it. They used it to reserve to uh, slaves or servants. It was a less than kind of a marker. And I want to point out that until Christ comes on the scene, until he lives his life and demonstrates True humility, true gentleness, true patience, the world hadn't known it. And it's no wonder that that would be the thought, that that's kind of a less than, lower, under kind of a thing until Christ, and we see perfect exemplification of what this means. The word that Paul uses here means lowliness of the mind which is clearly seen in Christ. And I mean, we could go to Philippians 2 and see how that Jesus didn't hold on to his deity, the fact that he was God, but he humbled himself and came in the form of a servant and offered himself in obedience to the Father to redeem us into the family of God. This is not a call to weakness. It's not a call just to be a a pushover and never have an opinion or a conviction on anything. It's a call to consider the needs of others before your own. To prefer one another, to put yourself lower than. It's true in that sense of the word. Paul said, Philippians 2, 4, let each one of you look not only to his own interests but to the interest of others. Are we committed as Christians to putting the good of our neighbor, the good of our brothers and sisters above our own and laying aside our preference so that we can demonstrate humility and gentleness. So not only humility, Paul says we must walk with gentleness. Now, maybe you have some kind of conception of what it means to be gentle. Oftentimes, grandmothers are thought of to be gentle and compassionate or maybe you have an opposite maybe you knew someone who was really harsh who was not gentle but either way we understand gentleness to be calmness approachable right and what I want to be careful of is that we don't equate these things gentleness humility with weakness In a sense, we recognize we are weak. I'm I'm not trying to get around that. But to be humble, to be gentle, does not mean that you are somehow less than the boastful, arrogant, proud person. Culturally speaking, it's the loudest mouth that gets attention. I mean, humility and gentleness are not like the quality that all the superstars want to have in the athletes, right? I mean, the person who boasts about their ability, who promotes themselves the most, they get the endorsement, they get the deals, they get whatever. This is so contra-culture for us to say, yeah, as Christians, we want to be marked by humility, gentleness, and patience. These are not valued as characteristic traits in our time. They weren't in Paul's time either. But let's define gentleness. <clears throat> I've been reading a commentary on by John Stott as I've gone through it. I've, I've just found him so helpful in a lot of ways. Uh, and he defines gentleness this way, and I thought it was really good. Gentleness is strength under control. Isn't that good? Gentleness is strength under control. It's the quality of a <clears throat> strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself And servant of others. That's why I say, don't think that gentleness is just being pushed over and you never have an opinion. It is strength under control. Submitting yourself to God. Peter told us in 1 Peter 5 God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't you want to experience the grace of God? Don't you want God's favor to be on you? I don't want to be opposed to God. But God opposes the proud. But he freely extends grace to those who humble themselves. This is what we have been called to as Christians. Paul now says, keeping in verses 2 and 3, That we must walk not only with gentleness and humility, but with patience. Bearing with one another in love. I think in this context we could describe patience as the quality by which we demonstrate long-suffering. You guys know what long-suffering is? It doesn't mean that your knee hurts for eight months. It means that you're patient. Right? Patience, long-suffering. We don't get quickly upset with things that we deal with over and over and over again. And when we close, I'm going to give you an example of how I totally bombed that this week. Remember that earlier in chapter 2, Paul told us about the unity that should exist in the church. We have Jew and Gentile coming together. The, The distinctions, the separations are gone, and now there is one body of Christ. So now... When he tells us to be patient with one another, I think we can put that together in the context of what we've already heard and see that unity is the goal. In fact, next week when we come back, we're going to go through verses four, five, six, and 7 and we are going to see the unity that exists in the Christian faith and he's getting us ready for that here. Gentleness, humility, patience, these are all working together to promote unity inside the church so that we can carry out our mission of walking worthy of the call and spreading the gospel to those who do not yet know it. And all of these traits held or bound together with love. If you're patient with somebody externally and yet inside you're just like, oh my word, I can't wait till this is over, get away from me, that's not true unity. Unity if you show gentleness on the surface and yet inside you're just seething because you can't wait to to tell you what I really think, that's not unity. That's not the unity that Paul is calling us to. The unity that God desires in the church is motivated by and built on love. Love for God, which produces love for one another. This is going to be a repeated theme as we go through the book. And all of this we should do, verse 3 says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I think it's really important to note Paul does not tell us that unity in the church is possible and we ought to strive to attain it. Remember in... uh, Philippians 3 Paul says that he he presses on to take hold of that which Christ had taken hold of him. Remember this this stretching kind of language that's not what he's saying here. This is different language. He is saying that there is unity that has been given by the Spirit and our job is not to create it but to maintain it. There's a difference. There's a difference between Paul saying <clears throat> you, need to, you need to get this figured out and, and build it and then, and then hang on to it or him saying there is unity that comes by the Spirit of God and your job is to conduct yourselves in such a way that that unity is not compromised, that it is maintained. It's important for a number of reasons. I'll just mention one. We don't make unity. We, God does. We bring sin we bring past experience, we bring preferences, we bring all of these things. And that is not a recipe for unity apart from the Spirit of God. Working in each one of us individually and then as we come together corporately, all of those things come together. And now, of course, it doesn't always go like this. Sometimes it's like this and stuff just doesn't fit. But we are called to maintain the unity that God has given to us. I think Paul uses the word bond in verse 3, the bond of peace, to describe the way that he desires this church, these churches in Ephesus, to be bound together in peace. Several places in the New Testament you can look and see where Paul referred to himself as a bond servant, or he said, I am in bonds or chains because of Christ, likewise, I think that he's saying the church ought to be chained together, bonded together in the peace that comes from Christ. We're going to see more of this unity when we come back next week and continue on through chapter 4. Now, Paul is instructing us in this section about corporate life, right? How do we maintain things in the church? This is instruction here, but as I've said before, we cannot and we must not. Take what we know, take what we learn, take what comes out on a Sunday morning and just leave it here. It has to come with us. We have to get this ingrained inside of us so that it can come out when we're together. But I just want to encourage you, even though this is an application for church life, this is also an application for how you individually conduct yourselves as believers. And I just want to share as we come to the end of this, Uh, a personal experience where God used this text this week to get my attention. And I I don't like to use myself as a positive example because I'm not the hero. I'm not the point. But I want you to know that I screw up. I'm I'm not standing up here saying, I've got this thing down. You guys got to get your act together. It's, It's as much of a problem for me as it is for you. Um, last June, as I think everybody knows, I had a kidney transplant. And one of the requirements was that you go on Medicare. There's some kind of, I won't bore you with the details, some kind of thing where kidney transplant patients go on Medicare to help pay with all the supplies and that kind of stuff. And if you've ever dealt with a government-run anything, it can be challenging in a lot of ways. And it's, been, it's just been a really frustrating week Um, there's just been a ton of time on the phone trying to figure out who's going to pay for what and will this be covered and will we get it on time and is it all going to come together And, and I just found myself after saying the same thing five or six or seven times to six or seven different people getting frustrated and going, why don't you get it? And then the text that we're in this week, God goes, Jacob, Remember what you're preaching this Sunday. Patience, gentleness, humility. Who am I to get worked up about something like this? Do I not trust that God is sovereign? Is it my responsibility? Is my calling as a Christian to figure out all the details and try to put things together so that it makes sense to me? That's not my call. My calling is to walk with gentleness, patience, and humility, and I blew it. And God used this text that we just preached through to wake me up and say, you know what? I can't live like this. I can't be like that. That's not what I'm called to do. I'm called to be gentle and patient. So, my encouragement for you comes from the exact same encouragement that I received this week. And maybe you're in a situation where you've just been spinning your wheels over and over and over again with the same thing. We all have those kinds of things. We get frustrated, annoyed. Your calling is not to figure out every detail but to trust God. And Walk with patience, gentleness, trusting God to reveal what you need when you need it. And you know what? He will. He always does. So be encouraged. No matter what you are spinning your wheels through, no matter how frustrated you get with your children or your co-workers or your students or whatever the case may be, gentleness, gentleness, patience humility. Let them mark you that the world would see Jesus in us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.